Christmas drama tragedy. So, hey, good to see everybody. Welcome again. Thanks for being here. Have you all had like a Christmas disaster yet? A big fail attempt? Anything at all? No? All right. Well, hey, listen, I just want to... Um, Say we're excited to welcome everybody for our Christmas Eve services this weekend. Uh, on your tables are the Pieces Worth It uh, brochures. If you haven't been around the past few weeks, those are in there. We're launching into our kind of unique season of giving between Christmas and Easter. And one of our financial goals is to raise $150,000 for a few things, and you'll see that in there. And we can do that if we're all participating. And so just want to encourage you to be a part of that. And Christmas Eve, our Christmas Eve um, offering, all of it goes to pieces worth it. And so that's kind of a great moment in time where we can bring in our, commi our commitment cards and our first gift, whatever it might be. However your giving pattern is, that'd be wonderful. And uh, I also want to make sure everybody is aware uh, the implications. We don't have in-building, in-person services the next two weeks. Are you with me? How many say amen? amen. How many of y'all excited about that? It's okay. You're not going to, nothing bad's going to happen. You're not going to go to purgatory. Kia's excited. She's like, hey, man, <laughs> come into that building, you know. Um, so, but listen, I do want to express my heartfelt honesty that we would like to pay the mortgage in January. So we're going two weeks without physical offerings, without donations. So make sure you go online. If you give regularly, give regularly. Can y'all do that for me? Don't make me regret this decision, okay? No. We'll have extra church in January. So, hey, can I get the sermon presentation up on the back screen for me? That'd be great. Thanks a lot. Um, otherwise, we'll be here forever. I mean, it's going to be 1130 as it stands, but no, I'm just kidding. We're going to do it. So before I jump into our talk uh, this morning, I want to say this right now. Um, the, the topic this morning, you can hear a lot of things that I'm not saying, <laughs> per usual, Okay. Um, and I think our topic this morning is one that's tough for us in the Western world, especially Americans, to grab a hold of this really deep message and meaning that Jesus produces in our lives. Um, but I want to hear, what I'm not saying is this, uh, we're going to be talking about war today, and we're going to be talking about kind of the reality of peace on earth and what that means. And I know a lot of us, including myself, um, have deep connections, many people have deep roots into uh, the armed services, maybe serving in the military, whatever it might be. Some, some of you have family members who have paid the ultimate sacrifice in serving our country. And I don't want you to hear me say something negative about that at all, okay? I have relatives that have long distinguished careers in the military. And this is not a message about whether or not serving in our armed forces is right or wrong. That has nothing to do with this message. This is a high-level message of what it really means to say, I follow Jesus and what God's vision of peace on earth is, okay? So can we just like start with that one? Because it's, I get it. It's really easy to start to hear something that really isn't being said because these two really get tied in together and it's really difficult in our context, in our nation, to kind of separate these two things. So we're going to try and do that today. But before we jump in, a little quick review. Our anchor verse for this series is found in Luke chapter 1, where Luke writes, In the heartfelt mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those sitting in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace, the way of peace. And so we've been exploring uh, in that first week, we said that this child, what, what child is this? This child lights the path to peace in three key relationships in our lives. Our relationship with God, Today, we're going to talk about our relationship with others, and then on Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about our relationship with ourselves. And when I talk about that, it's going to be like three minutes before we light the candle, so don't worry about it, okay? 
But last week, we said that Jesus lights the path to peace with God by really ending sin's power over our minds. And, and if you weren't able to listen to that message a few weeks ago, I would encourage you to go back as we really dug into this idea of sin and how should we think about it and does God have an issue with sin or do we have an issue with sin and what is sin and all those kind of big questions. And today we want to really get dive into this idea of peace on earth as it relates to our relationship with others. Y'all ever gotten into argument before? Right? Anybody, don't have to raise your hand on this, anybody get into a physical altercation with somebody that's part of your story somewhere along the way, right? And you were like, that was a bad idea, right? So we do find ourselves in tension with one another, and the culmination of tension with one another is war, right? War. War is the ultimate statement that this planet cannot exist with you on it, and so we will take matters into our own hands, right? War is the ultimate act of exclusion. Really, it is the ultimate violation of the divine image on the planet. This past year, on February 24th, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, announced a special military operation for the demilitarization and denazification of the Ukraine, and the Ukraine conflict and war began. And with one mouth of one human being, death was spoken into existence. Lives would be forever changed. A nation would be forever changed. Fathers would die. Mothers would die. Children would die. In fact, as of September, the United Nations has reported that uh, there's been 5,587 confirmed deaths of civilians in that conflict, including 149 girls, 175 boys, and 38 children whose sex is unknown. At least 7,800 civilians have been confirmed to be injured Right, currently in our world, this is your first villain, all right? Let's play a little Mad Lib. How many violent conflicts do you think there are currently right now in our world? 110. Right now, there's 110 armed violent conflicts taking place throughout our world. 45 in uh, the Middle East and in North Africa, 35 in Africa, there's 21 in Asia, 7 in Europe, and 9 in Latin America. In 2021, well, it was, it was released this year by the um, Uppsala Conflict Data Commission. They've put out uh, that in 2021, 119,000 people died as a result of organized violence. 119,000 people. That's an increase of 46% from the year before, and it's the highest it's been since 2015. Hey, Merry Christmas. Just what you wanted to hear when you came to church on December 18th. But the reality is, this world that we live in believes that the path to peace is through violence, fear, and control. And you can take that at the global level. You can take that from political powers and heads of state, all the way to in our workplaces and in our homes. That at some point, we think that the path to peace is to silence people, to create a space of fear, to control Use violence if necessary, because we think that violence will justify it. It's a justification. So the question that we have to ask is, in a religion, in a faith that follows Jesus, where at the, the kind of moment of the inception of the one that we follow, that we proclaim is Savior of the world, where the proclamation is peace on earth, we have to ask the question, what child is this and how does that relate to peace with others? Right? If for 2,000 years we've been celebrating this idea of peace on earth, and yet we are still living with armed conflict, and we're still living in a world that accepts that violence and death and killing is an absolute ends that justify the means, what do we do with Jesus and the call to be peacemakers and the, the angelic announcement of peace on earth? What do we do with that? 
Well, the truth is this child Jesus was born into a conflict zone, a little strip of land that was set between the world's superpowers of the day, constantly being fought over, constantly having an occupying force within it. And the current occupying force, the Roman Empire, was really no different than the last one. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, came just through the peace of any other empire. And in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that oppression, this child is born with a promise. And the promise that was attached to this child was that this child would rule on the throne of David. What does that mean? When Luke writes about this angelic moment between Mary and Gabriel, and the angel says that this child will be given a throne, what wisdom does that have for us? What was going on in Luke's mind as he gave us this story to help us understand the significance of Jesus? Well, in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 36, this is what it says about that moment as Luke is giving us this story. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Now, you've got to remember that David was the king of all kings, right? He was the ultimate king. You go back to David, you go back to the United monarchy. There was not two kingdoms under David's reign. It was not until Solomon came, things started to get worse, and then after Solomon, the kingdom split. But really, they would point back and say it was Solomon's reign and the way in which he did that that caused the nation to begin to go into that way of schism. So there would be a look back to David, who's referred to as a man after God's own heart. Interestingly enough, who was an adulterer and a murderer, but hey, there's a complexity to being a person after God's own heart, which is good news for all of us. But they would look back to David at this time where, where the nation was one, where it was flourishing. And so, so what Luke is establishing here, and what Matthew does even more so, is, hey, this Jesus is part of this lineage and line. And so Gabriel appears to Mary, and he says, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed. Y'all be confused and disturbed by an angel showing up one day? I know I would. Especially if it's on one of those days where I don't believe in angels. <laughs> that day would change my mind. You know what I mean? Like, I've got days where I don't believe in angels. I've got days where I do believe in angels. Do y'all, are you like that with me? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But if, if that happened to me on a day where I was like down on the whole angelic thing and then an angel, I'm like, oh, I guess I was wrong. I personally don't want to ever be visited by an angel. I'll just take normal, like just give me the Bible. I'll read the Bible. I'll pray. I don't need an angelic visitation. Every time an angel shows up, people get scared. I don't need it. All right. I don't like haunted houses and things like that either. So, all right. So Mary's wondering, what does this mean? I'm confused. So what does the angel say? Don't be afraid, Mary. I get it. Not everybody gets to see me right? So don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll name him Jesus. And he will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. Now, that's really good news, right? That's exciting news if you're Mary. If you're living in an oppressed land, the Roman Empire is there. You don't own any property. That's good news. But here's the problem. When Luke is writing this, the temple has been destroyed, Jerusalem has been under siege, and Rome looks more powerful than ever. How does that make any sense? Like, that, like Luke is writing this after 70 AD where the Romans came in, sacked the city, destroyed the temple, and said, don't ever try that nonsense again of revolt. So now the kingdom is really in shambles. So we have to bring that to bear. Like when Luke, Luke isn't writing this like a day after it happened, okay? 
Luke has been traveling. He's seen what's happened. He's trying to make sense. He's writing this down. And the nation is, is in just as bad a shape as it's ever been. Yet Jesus' kingdom will never end. But Jesus is not around. <laughs> so what, what's happening here is Luke is looking at this, and he's looking at the life of Jesus, and he's saying, here's the deal. There's a, there's a longing within our people, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that deep longing. And Luke now is going to, we're going to kind of understand what is Luke getting at? Because Luke grew up and Luke understood and Luke knew enough to say there's a deep desire inside the people's heart. And it was built off of this guy named Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet and he was pre-prophesied and wrote maybe 600 years earlier. (laughs) And one thing we can be sure of is that Isaiah, when he's prophesying, when he's writing, when he's doing his work, when he's being a voice for justice, when he's being a voice for the poor, he's not thinking about 600 years from the moment that he's living on this earth. He's thinking about that moment, right? So Isaiah's not talking in Isaiah 1 through 39. He's not like talking about, oh, this child that's going to come and it's 600 years later. No, like he has a kid in mind, (laughs) Like, he's longing for his moment. But Luke was smart enough, and Matthew was smart enough, that they looked at the life of Jesus, and they looked at the impact of Jesus, and they were smart enough to look back into their scriptures and say, how does this Jesus provide the ultimate fulfillment of what our hearts are desiring? Where do we see this longing? And so these verses, rightfully so, we take and we link them with Jesus. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have a, a more significant, or a different moment in history, but Jesus becomes the fulfillment of what we long for, of what the people longed for, but could never come in an earthly kingdom. So as Isaiah is writing, Isaiah is is really confronting the injustices and confronting the poor behavior of the kings of his day, right? That gets written down and it becomes part of the national desire, And so in this book, we'll call it First Isaiah. There's a book in the Bible we have called Isaiah, but there's actually three books within that one book. They're all written at different time periods. And Isaiah 1 through 39, we'll call it First Isaiah because that's what most scholars call it. I didn't make that up. In First Isaiah, really this can trace its heritage back to the original historical Isaiah. And in 1 through 39, we have a lot of what he wrote and a lot of what he said and a lot of what he hoped for. And he's addressing Jews that are living in Jerusalem prior to the Babylonian exile, prior to the destruction of the city. Now, he was a family man. Uh, He was a counselor of the kings. He was a skilled writer. He was an ardent defender of God's rights against royal self-will. Like he was always speaking against the, the way a king would behave and act. In the end, he was martyred for his faith. He was martyred at the hands of a king according to Hebrew tradition. Isaiah was this person who reigned during this very, very prosperous but immoral reign of a guy named King Uzziah. Interestingly enough, we've never been a part of a, a, a of leadership in our country of immorality yet prosperity. Yeah, I said it. That's not a part of our story, is it? Of course it is. And Isaiah was the voice right in the middle of it. 
If you're familiar with some of the other prophetic voices, just to kind of put Isaiah into context, because these are real people, right? Like he was a contemporary with a guy named Amos and, and another guy named Hosea. They were both voices of justice. And they were prophesying, they were working in the northern kingdom, whereas Isaiah and Micah were working in the southern kingdom. They were kind of political advisors. We take the word prophet and we turn it into this like guy that lives out in the mountains with a long beard who gets these visions while their eyes are rolled back in their head and then comes down from a mountain. No, like these were people right in the thick of it, right? So he preached during a couple of the king's reigns. You can find out, and he, was, he knew a lot about politics. He wrote beautiful poetic language. He had an exquisite understanding of the Hebrew language, which all indicate that this was a very, very cultured, educated person. Married, had two kids, right? His his work was important. It was well thought out. And he was really dedicated to speaking truth to power. He was very dedicated to looking at the king of the nation and saying, knock it off. Why? Because for Isaiah, the king was where it all started. Like the health of the nation started with the king. Because the king, in their worldview, was the one closest to God. The king was the son of God. And if the king was on it point, then the nation would be on point, right? So there's a guy named Timothy Carmody, and he wrote a book called Reading the Bible. And this is what he says about Isaiah's beliefs surrounding the importance of the king. He said, with the king at the top of the social order and in closest contact with God, everything depends on whether the king is humble, trusts in God, dispenses justice and judgment, and brings about peace. If the king relies on God, then the whole social order will be stable and strong from the king down to the orphans and the widows. If the king, however, does not rely on God, but relies on his own power or alliances and armies, the whole nation will suffer. The princes will plot. The priests will steal. The judges will be bribed. And the widows and orphans will be oppressed. There will be no justice, judgment, or peace in the land. That was the deep driving motivation of Isaiah. If, the, if things are off at the top, everything else is bad. Now, remember, there's no separation of church and state here. I'm not proposing that all of a sudden we eliminate that. I'm just saying for Isaiah and his understanding of the king. Now, with that belief, he prophesies and he speaks against the king. It's no wonder that according to the Hebrew legend that he dies at the hands of a very evil king named Manasseh. He was placed in a hollow tree and sewn in half. Truth has a cost. This idea that our behavior and, 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 and how we rule and lead and what it means to be honoring of God towards the poor and the marginalized and peace, it matters because power doesn't like it. And so Isaiah, throughout one through chapters 1 through 39, we get some of the most beautiful poetry that we read every year at Christmas time. And we've taken this and we've said, Jesus is the, the, in our belief system, Jesus is the fullness of these. Isaiah 9, 5 through 6, you've heard this, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, upon his shoulder dominion rests. They name him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. His dominion is vast upon David's throne and over his kingdom, which he confirms and sustains both now and forever. Isaiah spoke that in his moment, in his day, longing for a righteous ruler to come and sit on the throne of David. Probably had a family in mind, probably knew who it was, right? This is a guy who is in the political echelons, like he's seeing it all. He knows who the movers and shakers are. But what would happen over hundreds and hundreds of years, no one would be able to fulfill that. And Luke looks back and he sees it and says, that's about Jesus. And it's not about this reign here on earth. 
Another very famous passage that we read at Christmas time is Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. I'm going to read it quickly. It says, but a shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And from his roots, a bud shall blossom. The image here is that there's, man, there's some brokenness, but there's some life. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and of understanding, a spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. Look, listen to this. This is what Isaiah is longing for in his day. As the kings are ruling over and oppressing, as they're using their power for their own gain, as they're relying on alliances with kings and not on God, he's saying, this one, this one will not judge by appearance, nor by hearsay shall he decide, but he shall judge the poor with justice. See, justice isn't, in in biblical terms, justice is not punitive, it's restorative. The poor always need justice. Poverty is always, always, always an issue of injustice. That's the biblical understanding. He'll decide fairly for the lands afflicted. He shall strike the ruthless with the rod of his mouth. Think about when this is being written and like, and, and the time of violence and overthrow. It's like Game of Thrones stuff, people. Like, there's, there's coups everywhere, but he's saying his, he will rule with his mouth, his words. That's how he's going to conquer. The breath of his lips will slay the wicked. There's no violence there. Justice shall be the band around his waist and faithfulness a belt upon his lips. And here's the product of it. Then the wolf will be a guest of the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the goat and the calf and the young lion shall browse with a child to guide them. That's like my dream. Y'all ever get like sucked into like the TikTok videos of people like being reunited with the tigers they raised. I am a sucker for that. Like six hours later, I'm like, I should go to bed. It's four in the morning, but the lions are so cute. There's something inside of us that longs for it. It says the cow and the bear shall shall together take their young and lie down. The lion shall eat hay like an ox. The baby shall play with in the viper's den. I don't know about that one, but okay. The child lay his hand on the adder's lair. They shall not harm or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with knowledge of the Lord as water covers the sea. And you have to go back. Well, what is the knowledge of the Lord? It's this ideal of peace. The knowledge of the Lord, of Yahweh, is what this is saying, this God of the Hebrews, is, is an idea of peace for everyone. And so Isaiah longed for a king whose heart perfectly aligned with God's heart, right? This idea of a person after God's own heart, that's what Isaiah wanted. He wanted a king that would promote peace, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole earth, for all people, justice for the poor, ending of violence and fear, a king who would reveal the truth of God's vision that's not just for Israel, but is for everyone. Now, the writer of the Gospel of John believed that Jesus was that, was the fulfillment of that desire. In John 18, we have the scene of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, after he's been arrested. It says that Pilate went back into the praetorium and he summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this on your own or have others told you this about me? In other words, has there been a revelation in your heart, Pilate, about me? Pilate answers, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Here's what John says Jesus says in this moment. And remember, John's giving us theology, not necessarily history. 
John wasn't in there with Pilate. John's helping us understand the significance of Jesus. What does Jesus say? My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom did belong to this world, my attendants would be doing what? Fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not here. John's like, listen, this is Jesus, king of kings, because he refuses to participate in the game. Because his followers don't do that. See, the kingdom of Jesus is not built on the lies of empire, which are fear and violence. The empire says, we'll create peace through fear and violence. So Pilate says to him, then you are a king. And Jesus says the strangest thing. You say I'm a king. Like Jesus doesn't say it. Jesus doesn't go like, yes, I said that. Thank you for paying attention, Pilate. He just says, you say I'm a king. I just think Jesus knew he was participating in a kingdom. Right? You know, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, I don't know that Jesus was making a claim or John was making, but as much as Jesus saying, the one that I'm a part of, the one that I'm in, the one that makes the most sense to me, the one that I promote, like my kingdom's not of this world. Now, I think Jesus knew he was the king. I think, I think that John wants us to think that. But I think it's fascinating that Jesus doesn't say, yes, I'm a king. No, he just says, you say that I'm a king. I'm trying to get you, Pilate, to understand I am, but, I'm not, but it's not this structure. And a lot of times we don't know this because we kind of stop the story a lot of times at Easter time when we read that. But this is what he says in following up to that. He says, for I was born for this. I came into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. So in that whole context, Pilate then says, well, what is truth? Because the truth is, I can kill you. What kind of king are you? But what Jesus is saying in that moment, what all of this is bringing us to, what the gospel writers want us to understand, what Luke is trying to say in bringing up the imagery from Isaiah, that this child lights the path to peace with others by revealing the truth of the kingdom of heaven and the lies of the kingdoms of this world. That there is a truth to the kingdom of heaven is what the gospel writers would call it. See, the gospels, in all, all of them, in their own unique way, all four reveal that there is a major clash between the path to peace that's found in Jesus and the path to peace that's found in Rome. Every one of them is at the heart of it. And you and I, while it's difficult, we can replace Rome, the word Rome, with any other empire of any age, including today, and we'll see the clash. And this is where it gets tricky for those following Jesus in America, because somewhere along the way, we've lost our minds, and we have somehow thought that God reverted back to national tendencies and borders and boundaries, that somehow the cross would proclaim that there would be an empire that would bring about peace on earth, and it's sheer foolishness and folly. It's antichrist. It's absolute antichrist. Now I'm getting all mad. I need to call. we've lost our minds. We've lost the mind of Christ. I mean that quite literally, spiritually. We have lost the mind of Christ when we place the empire of our country, which I am very grateful to be a part of. I'm very grateful to be a part of, but we have lost the mind of Christ when that is of higher priority than the kingdom of heaven. And I can promise you, 
that that will not fill churches in America, what I just said. Quickest way to ungrow a church in America is put America in its rightful place before God. Beautiful, wonderful. Wonderful. I wouldn't want to live in another nation, but I refuse to put my allegiance to an empire. I refuse to do it. Because that's not the path to peace that Jesus calls us to. And that's just me. Now, most of us, including myself, I don't sit in the room and decide who goes to war and who doesn't go to war. Anybody in that room? No, we're not in that room. So what about your everyday normal life? Right? If Jesus offers this path to peace that's not built on violence or fear, and I believe that extends all the way up to the nation state level, but what about your everyday life? Well, here's what I would encourage all of us, including myself, that all of us need to choose between two paths to peace in our everyday normal life. Every one of us. Every day we got to wake up and we got to say, which path will I choose today? What will govern my actions? This idea that if I go to church, raise my hand, say a repeat after me prayer, give my heart to Jesus, and then I'm good, I get to go to heaven, is an actual, it's, it, it destroys the very gospel that is meant to change the world, <laughs> that's meant to change hearts, to be subversive to the patterns of this world. And so the invitation is actually this. This is the invitation of salvation. Which path will I choose? A path of peace that's laid out by Jesus or a path of peace that's laid out by empire? One feels really good. One will get you killed. I mean, that's just, that, that's the model of Jesus. So every day I have to choose this and it starts at home. I have to say, what will govern my actions in my relationships? What will govern my actions in my relationship to my spouse, to my children, to my coworkers, to the people who work for me, to the people who I work with, to the people I lead? How will I treat those who are different than me, who are weaker than me, who are wronger than me? How will I treat them? What kind of atmosphere will I create? What will it be based on? This is what it means to say, who will be the king of my life? Oh, we've reduced it to such foolishness. Oh, Jesus is the king of my life. I don't watch R-rated movies. When I say that out loud versus like the killing of hundreds of thousands of people and like the, you know, baptism of war, like, I don't know. It just feels like one of those is more significant. It just feels like one has a bigger weight on peace on earth. But we have to make that choice every day. Will I choose the king of this world to promote peace? right? I can get that. Will I choose the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, right? Will I choose that every day? And it will, it'll, it'll cost me to create, use violence and fear, might, corruption, build a hierarchy, or will I follow the king of heaven that was born in a manger that promotes the peace of God, which is justice and mercy and forgiveness and healing, the Sermon on the Mount. See, the big truth that Jesus seems to reveal about the biggest reality, the the really real, the sacred real, the kingdom of God, whatever word we use, right? What Jesus chose to reveal is summed up really well by Father Richard Rohr in this book that he wrote called Jesus' Alternative Plan. It's all in the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, this is what he says. He says, the true sacred, which is synonymous with the reign of God or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, is of an entirely different order and significance. 
On the level of experience, how we experience, the true sacred always reveals these things. And I actually put them as fill-ins because they're so good. They're so good. It reveals, one, that God is one and for all. One God for all. That God is sovereign to any group ownership or personal manipulation. In other words, no one religion, no person gets to say, I got God, and use God for their own benefit. God's sovereign to all of that. What we call God is available as a free gift and not through sacrificing another. This is what was revealed in Jesus. That God needs no victims and creates no victims. That's the kingdom of God. That's the subversive invitation of Jesus. I believe that God has heaven taken care of, by the way. I believe that God has eternity taken care of. That that's grace. There's a deep partnership for right now, though, right? That's the revelation of Jesus. It's the question of which dome am I going to live in? Am I going to live in the little dome of my story? Am I going to live in the little bit bigger dome of our story, right? Like the Christian story? Or am I going to live in the story, God's story, the redemption of all, the work of all? Which one am I going to put my life into? So we make the choice every day. Second thing we should do is we should promote policies and leaders and actions that align with Jesus' path to peace on earth. As an American, right, where we do have influence, where we do have rights, where we do get a say, we should look for those policies, we should look for those leaders that promote Jesus' path to peace on earth. And conversely, we should stand against those the policies that are built on the world's path. I know this is crazy talk. It sounds really crazy when I say it out loud. We should actually look for people, not that they follow Jesus, because I know a lot of people that follow Jesus but don't follow the path to peace. I know a lot of people that go to church and a lot of people that have said a prayer, but they actually don't have anything that resembles the humble, merciful, inclusive, peacemaking path of Jesus that led him to the cross. They look more like Rome. I look more like Rome. <laughs> I get it. So we should look for those leaders. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that Jesus' path to peace never leads to violence and war. It never does. Nowhere in Jesus' path to peace. Nowhere is Jesus going to change his mind. Huh, we tried it this way. Saddle up. I know that there's a reading of Revelation that wants to believe that. Nowhere in the plan. In fact, Jesus came and gave his life so that we would stop taking life. <laughs> Death and killing, war and violence, even when completely legal, always creates another victim. It always continues the cycle. It's a temporary solution. War doesn't end war. Violence doesn't end violence. How do we not see this? It just doesn't ever end it. Ernest Hemingway said this. Ernest Hemingway said, never think that war, no matter how necessary nor how justified, is not a crime. Gandhi said, what difference does, I love this quote, what difference does it make to the dead, the orphans, and the homeless, whether the mad destruction is wrought under the name of totalitarianism or in the holy name of liberty and democracy? That's one that will keep you up at night. And here's the thing, if we will just, every, in our everyday normal lives as people, choose that path to peace, if we'll just make that choice, start at home, start in the neighborhood, start at work, start by church, if we'll make that choice, we can start to be the leaven. <laughs> we can start to be the leaven. 
And here's the big thing. Imagine, imagine the resources that are available (laughs) to ending disease, eliminating poverty, exploring the universe, rehabilitating the prisoner, healing the sick in a world where violence and killing are unacceptable under any circumstances. Imagine the resources that would be available if as a global community we said we will stop killing one another, we will stop violence, and we will pour all that money into healing. We will turn our swords into plowshares. And somehow, we'll proclaim that as Christians, yet we'll live and make decisions in the exact opposite way. Like the vision of God is that the tools of destruction become the tools of feeding the hungry. Swords into plowshares. The resources that would be available. Dwight D. Eisenhower said this, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired, signifies in the final sense a theft from those who are hungry and those who are not fed, from those who are cold and are not clothed. The world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. He said, this is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the clouds of war, it is humanity hanging on a cross of iron. What child is this? It's a child who offers a path to peace and who invites people to walk that path to peace even if it costs them their life. That's the movement. That's why the movement was so powerful and that's why the movement lost its power when it became political. Probably the worst thing to ever happen to our faith and our tradition was Constantine. Just my humble opinion. When it became the religion of Rome, when the religion of the poor became the religion of the powerful, it's just like oppression on steroids because you want to know how to do harm and never feel bad about it? Just do it in God's name. I think there's a movement taking place in our world and in elements of our faith that are reclaiming the reality of what following this Jesus means. And it's not popular. It's not necessarily fun, but it produces a joy. It produces a peace because it produces a path that really can save the world. So as we wrap up this morning, what is it that God's inviting you into today? This is a heavy, heavy understanding, but this is the truth of Christmas. This is peace on earth. This is a child born, and violence immediately takes over according to one of the stories about his birth, and Herod starts killing babies. So I hope that this morning you'll hear the Spirit of God, the universe, love, the great mystery, the divine, whatever word you like to use, just whispering into your heart, choose the peacemaking path of Jesus. Don't choose the peacemaking path of this world because it's a false promise. It's a false peace. That's the big one that I hope you hear today. A couple little ones I hope you hear. Invite somebody to Christmas Eve. If you're around, come on out. And I hope maybe you hear a little voice to explore more about this alternative path that Jesus offers. I mentioned that book that has been reprinted this last year, Jesus' Alternative Plan. Grab a couple of friends. First of the year, get through the holidays. Just say, hey, let's read this together. Let's really dig in and understand what is Jesus' alternative plan? What does that look like? I think 
the, the message of the Sermon on the Mount is so relevant to this moment in our world and in our faith and in our tradition. So we have this great song that was written by Stevie Wonder. And I think Stevie Wonder and Andre Day recorded it a few years ago. That really brings out the hope of this, of this message that at Christmas we're reminded that we should long for the day where war is over, where violence is ended. So during this song, I just encourage you to take a few moments and finish filling out your Connect card. Fill out that offering envelope, your donations today. And just take a moment and just find hope in that the vision of God for peace on earth, that we can believe it and we can live towards that. And while we might not see it in our time, we can sow the seeds. We can plant it and we can create a faith and, and reclaim a faith that is grounded in this peacemaking work, in this peacemaking path of Jesus. I love the lyric that says, someday at Christmas there'll be no wars when we've learned what Christmas 